All right, church, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6 today, and, and we're in the place in Ecclesiastes where he starts to readdress certain issues that, that he's already been addressing. Uh, if you look at the way the book is written, I think we said the first week that it's kind of a journal for Solomon. It's kind of almost like a diary. These are the thoughts that he has. He has put much time thinking and considering what the meaning of life is. And, and, and as you look at what he's written down here, you find that he is a man that had it all. You find that he is a man who absolutely isn't writing from theory. He's not writing what he thinks about life. He's telling you what he has seen with his own eyes, what he has experienced in his own heart. And at the end of it all, Solomon came to the conclusion that he sees men striving. He sees men living and yet what he finds is that if men don't know and understand and have God in the center of their life, then the end of their life ends up being meaningless. He said you can chase all kind of things in life. He says basically life is, is meaningless because of it, and he just began listing things. And, and that's what the first section of Scripture was about the first few chapters, and now when we get into chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, we find that he's going to come back to some of those same topics because where he stated they're vain, where he stated they're worthless, now he's going to come back and say, this is why some of these things are meaningless and why you should not spend your life wanting to live as the world around you lives. They're seeking things that cannot bring joy. They are seeking things that cannot bring peace. They are putting their hope in things that will not give their life any meaning, yet they have completely fooled themselves into thinking that they can. And he begins with the issue of money. Now, I love what Solomon has to say in this section of Scripture because he basically is going to say that for many of us, life seems like a dead-end street. The reason it seems like a dead-end street is because if you put the wrong things in the wrong places in your life, depending on what your goals are, there's nothing more frustrating than not meeting your goals. There's nothing more frustrating than not understanding that I'm meeting the purpose for which I've been created. And so for many people, they are on a road that looks like it's going somewhere, but every time they think they're getting there, they realize it's just a dead end. That it wasn't what they thought, it wasn't what they hoped for, because they're hoping in the wrong things. They're seeking the wrong things. And it leaves them unfulfilled. Now, he knows that for many of us, we struggle. He, he brought in the question when it came to money a little bit earlier. He says, why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like those who don't know God, who aren't following God, who don't serve God, who, who don't love God, listen, why is it that they seem like they prosper? And when we see that prospering, we start to ask questions. We start to wonder. In fact, we can get jealous. In fact, we can start to really question God. And what Solomon is going to come back and say in this section to us is don't envy the success of the world. Now, that's hard. We are ingrained as Americans. It's been ingrained into us that wealth equals blessing. That if you have money, then you have security. If you have money, then you have satisfaction. 
And I told you going into this series that the truth is many times the hardest pill to swallow. And he's going to hit us with some very difficult truths today. And he's not going to say that riches in and of themselves are sinful, but what he's going to tell us is exactly what the Apostle Paul would later tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He would say to us, he would put it this way in the New Testament, that it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And if we're not careful, money plays a wrong role in our life. Money becomes a goal. Money becomes a status symbol. Money becomes the very definition of who we are. And we think that money in and of itself becomes the determining factor of whether or not we are able to truly live life. And Solomon says, when you think that way, you're thinking the wrong way. There's five things that Solomon says to us today that money can never do, and that's why he says that if you're seeking money, and that's the goal in the end of your life, if that's what matters to you more than anything, if that's where all your time, all your energy, all your talent goes into that one thing, he says at the end of it all, you're going to find that you're pursuing something that's going to leave you meaningless. In chapter 5, verse 8, these are the words, and we're going to spend a lot of time in 5 today. And I hope that you'll read 6, but most, and there's a lot of duplicating in those two chapters. We're going to spend a lot of time for the sake of time in chapter 5 today. It says, if you see oppression of the poor, in verse 8, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. And as, he would, and as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so shall he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great, great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself and all of one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man whom God has given riches and wealth, he has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift, from God, or the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the goodness of his heart. What we find in this chapter 
is that from the beginning, and what we know of all of Scripture, that from the beginning, God's desire was to bless. That God's desire was for us to enjoy this life. You have to love the setting of the garden where God basically says that we walk in fellowship with Him. And we recognize that in Him is everything that we need. God blessed mankind with everything and said, as you go out and work, and you take what I've given to you and you cultivate the land and the land produces its fruitfulness, you can enjoy this life. I believe with all my heart that God wants us to live blessed lives in relationship with Him and in relationship with one another. There's no escaping it. When you look at the end of the chapter 5, that's exactly what you see. He doesn't want us to squander our life, as it says in verse 20, considering the years of this life. He means just sitting there and worrying about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He doesn't want us to live life with worry, life with anger, life with vexation, as he says. He wants us to live life enjoying the things, thankful for the things that he has given to us. But many of us don't live that way. And he says the reason is because the love of money. What does Solomon say that money can never do? If we get to the heart of these points, we'll see why there is no reason for us to envy the success of the wicked. He says, number one, money can never solve corruption. You see, if there's one thing that we know is true of money, that money in many ways, especially the love of money, understand that when we love money and we are consumed with money, money actually is one of the greatest contributing factors to the corruption that is in us and around us. If we ask to lift hands in this room, it didn't take you very long in your life to steal something. Now, most of us are sitting back and saying, no, wait, Aaron, I've never robbed a bank. I'm not talking about robbing a bank. I'm talking about robbing your dad's piggy bank. I'm talking about looking in his wallet when he ain't there. I'm talking about when your brother has $5 and you think that you can take $1 because you think, you know that that money can buy you something that you want, that you need. Have you ever realized that even at young ages, money corrupts? He uses the example of government. The reason government is so corrupt is because who has the most money in this country? It's the government, if you hadn't realized it. And wherever there's that much money, there's always going to be corruption. There's always going to be a desire for more. There's always going to be a desire that I want my part, I want my share. And he says that with corruption, there's always this cycle of there's one who has and there one is one who doesn't have. There's one who's greater than the other people. And there's always someone above us who is seeking to take advantage of those that are beneath them because that's what money, the love of money, so many times does for us. It makes us willing to do anything to have it. We'll sacrifice our families. We'll sacrifice our friends. We'll sacrifice our morals. We'll sacrifice our conscience. We'll step on anybody and everybody that gets in the way from us making the goals that we've set for ourselves. If it means that I'm blessed or you're blessed, I'm going to make sure that I'm blessed. Because you see, money has this way when we love it too much. It has this way of corrupting us. 
Money doesn't solve corruption. Money usually is that which is causing the corruption, the covetousness that wells up within us. And that's why we struggle. We see that people are oppressed, that the poor are denied justice, and the poor are denied righteousness, it says. Well, number one, I want you to realize that when it comes to the poor and oppressed, when you sit back and you say, when is God going to make it right? Make no mistake, God will make it right. Uh, Make no mistake, you're accountable for every action, for every word, for everything that you do to seek out money or fame or anything else that you desire and you're running after. Understand that whatever you did to accomplish it, whether right or wrong, you'll give an account to God. That's what actually verse 9 is talking about there. It's a strange verse, and it's actually very hard to translate. When you look at all the translations that are out there, they really change this one a lot to try to capture the meaning. They look very different depending on the translation. The NASB says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Other translations, I think, are a little bit clearer in the description of what is going on here because what he's reminding you is the king is the top of the food chain, right? That in that day, it was the king that was at the top, and he is reminding us that even the king needs God to cultivate a field. That we have to understand that when it comes to money and the love of money, first and foremost, it's not what you make, it's what God gives. And if you have an ability to make money, it's not that you're better, that you're smarter. It's that God blessed you and gave you the ability. Have you ever met those people that are just entrepreneurs? I mean, they think up the stuff that none of us think of. Like, I'd have never thought to start a business to put down the little reflectors in the middle of the road. Man, think about those guys, how much money they make. Or the little things on your shoelace. How would you like to have invented those? And there are some people that God just gives these amazing minds to for business. But I want you to understand that at the end of all of it, it's God. It's absolutely God who who does bring into our lives whatever a blessing is. Whatever we have, it's from Him. The blessing of the Lord is meant to be upon all of us. And even the king needs the blessing of God. And the king will answer. Those in authority. And I want you to know it's not just Congress. It's not just the state legislature. It's, you know, we can sit there and blame government. And, and we can sit here and he does put the focus on government here. But what about the way you do business? Can it be said that the way that you lead is for the blessing of those that are all around you? I think it's the greatest evidence of good leadership. A man who understands that God blesses so that he can bless others. That's the leader that doesn't feel the need to step on everybody around them to climb the ladder. They want everybody to climb the ladder. It tells you a lot about your mindset. Whether or not the money that you seek has corrupted your soul and your ability to lead and to love and to bless. Secondly, money can never bring satisfaction. Now, this is a big one. Uh, Verse 10 says it as plainly as it can be said. It says, he who loves money will never be what? It's plain English, isn't it? If you love money and that becomes your goal and your pursuit in life is more and more money, you know what he says? It's like a bubble. That whenever you finally go and you catch up to the bubble and you go to grab the bubble, what happens every time? It's like this picture I saw this week. 
The carrots are always out front, isn't it? And you run after it, and you walk after it, and you try to get it, and you try to get it, and you're never able or to, or you're never able to attain what it is that you think you're going to attain. Because here's why money never satisfies. Because it's never enough for us. If you made $10, you'd want $11. Most of us have the idea that, you know what, if I just made $100,000, I would have all that I need. No, if you made $100,000, your boss is going to walk in and he's going to say at the end of the year, listen, we're doing raises again this year and you're going to get a 5% raise. I've never met a person that looks at his boss and says, hey, you know what, I'm good. I said if I ever was going to make $100,000, surely I can live off that. I used to live off $10,000. I used to live off $20,000. Surely I can live off $100,000. Don't give me the raise. I want you to give it to the guy at the bottom. Anybody ever seen that done? No. No. You know why? Because money is one of those things you never have enough. It never fully satisfies. And I'll tell you this, the more money you have, the more money you what? Yeah, the more money you spend. Me and Melanie, it was crazy. Back in the day when we were in school, we were both students in North Florida. I was getting my, my bachelor's degree. We were young and single, and it was amazing. We both worked at Piggly Wiggly. I would not say that you need to make a whole career on bagging groceries or stocking shelves at Piggly Wiggly because, I mean, really the money's not that good. But you know what was crazy? We made it. And I'm going to be honest. When, you, when I look back, and then most of you would probably say this was true. Don't you look back and sometimes remember how much simpler life was before you made it? <laughs> because I look now and sometimes I'm like, how are we still struggling to pay the bills when we get paid so much more than we did back then? Because the reality is, well, kids, that is a good answer. That's uh, ding, ding, that's number two. <laughs> but the reality is, if we lived by ourselves, we would spend everything that we have. And most of us in America, we so want, and, and you know, sometimes uh, you, you look, and I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest disservices we do, even to the next generation, if you ever read Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, and seen the, the video footages that have been put together of that, what made that generation so good was they knew what it was to struggle. That generation went through the Depression. That generation went through World War I, and, and, and some of them going into World War II literally at this point were able to go fight. And these people were industrious. These people were not spoiled in any way. In fact, I would say the opposite was true. They knew how to do much with little. And when the time came to fight World War II, it was amazing how America rose to the occasion and kind of rose up from the ashes, right? It had been a very difficult several years with the Depression and everything else, and there were many people who learned so much through the struggle, but probably as great a generation as that generation was, probably the greatest mistake that they made was that when they came out of World War II, and the economy started booming, and industry started booming, and there was money to be had everywhere, and jobs to be had everywhere, and everybody was living really much more luxurious than they were before the war. Do you know what happened? Is they started to have the mindset 
that I'm going to make sure that my kids, what, have it better than I had it. And you know what we started doing? And we're still doing it today. We're trying to give our kids everything. Everything. And if you ever notice, no matter how much you give your kid, you know what they never are? And we're raising a bunch of spoiled kids who don't know what it is to work, who don't know what it is to earn a dollar, to save a dollar, to spend a dollar on somebody other than yourself. And what a disservice we do to our children when we give them everything except the one thing that God knows that they need, struggle. You hear me, parents? Your kids need to struggle. Your kids need to know what struggle looks like. Your kids need to know that, you know what, when life comes at you, you don't get to just deal with it one thing at a time. That's probably one of the greatest disservices I watch happen to children. We so try to make their life easy, to make their life blessed. We so try to remove all struggle. I mean, most kids don't even ever have to juggle more than one thing. It's like all the way through college, they never have to work a job because I want them to just focus on one thing. Well, I've never, never in my life found that I only get to deal with one thing. And we wonder why they can't deal with anything when they get done. Folks, struggle's part of it. And we got to teach them that they will never be satisfied outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that if they seek Him first in His kingdom, in His righteousness, then everything else gets added. But we are trying to add everything into their lives without giving them the thing that matters most. We think if I just make enough money, my kids will be blessed. If I just make enough money, my kids will have all the things. If I just make enough money, they'll get into the right colleges and the right schools. And all the while, if only we would make them study the Word of God the way we make them study chemistry. If only we were as serious about the Great Commission as we are about how much money they're going to be able to make when they get out of college. You see how our lives get upside down? And we're chasing something that cannot satisfy, that doesn't ever really bring any true joy. The man who loves money, he's in a catch-22 because he wants something that he cannot attain. Our desires always outrun our possessions. Let that sink in a second. Our desires always outrun our possessions. We always want more and more and more, and it never stops. The desire that is within us for things, it's like a fire that keeps burning and it keeps consuming. And that's what I meant when I said that, that we keep getting more and more and more and more. And it doesn't matter how much you make, you're just going to keep spending more and more and you stay on the wheel. And you never are able to enjoy life because you're trying to catch up to the life that you've built, which isn't the life that you really should be living. Most Americans live in such crazy credit card debt. They drive cars they can't afford. They live in homes that they can't afford. They're stretched so very thin, thinking that if I can just build this facade, this life, whether it's for what people think, 
or whether it's just to make themselves feel better about themselves, they live a life that really doesn't exist and they're never satisfied. I loved the statement when I read it this week. It said, it's better to enjoy what you have than to dream about what you don't have. Most of us would do well to spend time enjoying what we have. Uh, we've heard it said this way, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We've got to enjoy life now. And we're going to get into that at the end. Number three. He says money can't solve all your problems. Now, we do believe that's true. If we had all the money in the world, then we wouldn't have any problems. If I could just win the lottery, I wouldn't have any problems. Listen, watch the documentaries on people that win the lottery. They will tell you, I didn't have problems until what? Until I won the lottery. Uh, <laughs> money and things complicate your life. They don't make it easier, they make it harder. I had somebody share with me right after church, you know, they were grateful today listening to this sermon because they were reminiscing about a, a few months ago when they had a choice, a decision to make a financial decision that in their minds and in, on paper they could have said, we could have done it, but they were realizing that, you know what, they're in the time of life that they're supposed to be enjoying life. And they said, if we had made this commitment, we may well have just gone back to being 20 years old again. We'd have been burning it at both ends trying to make ends meet to have this thing that we wanted rather than enjoying what it is that we have. Anybody been there? Yeah. All of us. All of us. Bigger and better isn't going to make your life complete. And even if wealth doesn't change you, you want to know how life gets complicated, it changes those around you. One of the hardest things about winning the lottery is suddenly you have a wealth of what? You got friends. Solomon knew that. Solomon was the wealthiest man in the world, and he knew it full well. In Proverbs 14, 20, he said, those who love the rich are many. That means when you're rich, you got friends, but the problem is you don't know whether they like you for the money or whether they just like you. You ever have those friends in high school and in college? It doesn't change when you get out of college that they're there while the party's going, but when the party stops... They're done with you. When you got nothing left to give, they're done. Because you start to realize that was the foundation of the relationship in the beginning. Many of you may know who Cornelius Vanderbilt was. He was one of the, the tycoons of, of really the early uh, American culture. I mean, he came in and built railroads all across America and was probably one of the, if not the wealthiest man in America at one point. And he makes a very interesting statement and understand he had far more money than just a million dollars. Even back then, he was a multimillionaire, okay? He had tons and tons and tons of millions of dollars. And this is what he said. He said, a million dollars is more than any mortal should have to bear. Because for him, you know what he said, and this was a man, again, this isn't theory. Most of us in this room, we're speaking from theory when we talk about a million dollars. If I had it, I would be better off. If I had it, I would have peace of mind. I would have satisfaction. I would have security. We think what it would give us. Listen to the people. Listen to Solomon. Listen to Mr. Vanderbilt. His definition was a million dollars is more than any mortal man should have to what? Bear. You know what bear means, right? 
It means that it is such a weight, such a burden on you that it is driving you into the ground and you can't hardly carry it anymore. Because what it takes to stay that wealthy and what it takes to build what he built, it cost him everything. There's many a man that built a huge business but lost his family, lost his friends, probably lost their minds. Because fourthly, money can never bring us peace of mind. It doesn't solve our problems. When, when, you, when you look up at verse 11, he said, when good things increase, then those who consume increase. Then their friends are going to show up, right? And then when you get down to verse 12, he says, the sleep of a working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Well, let's break it down a little bit. Let's put it in today's terms. You know what he's saying? He's saying sometimes it's better to be an hourly employee than the owner of the company. Because you know what the hourly employee gets to do, right? Man, he, he goes in, he punches a clock, he has a job that he's supposed to do, and he goes in and he does that job, and he works for eight hours. And when he gets there, he has to start thinking about work, and then he focuses on work for those eight hours, and once he's done, what does he get to do? He gets to clock out. Does he have to worry about how the bills are getting paid? Does he have to worry about the checkbook? Does he have to worry about anything? I mean, no, literally... All he has to wait for is the check to come. And these guys, listen, I mean, just think about what he's saying. He's saying that sometimes you think that you want this life and you want to have this company and do these things. He says, many of us don't realize what it costs us. It costs us in many ways our peace of mind. Because our whole world becomes consumed with keeping this huge thing going. I can tell you the happiest people on earth. Most of them don't live in America, just so you know. When I travel the world, I see people that we are so tempted to have pity for. Those poor people, boy, they just live in that little hut. That must be miserable. Man, if only I could pack them up and bring them to America, that would be the worst thing you could do for them. Really? I'm not kidding. We think if we could Americanize the world... Folks, there are great things about technology. There, I mean, listen, I love air conditioning like the next guy. But I will tell you this, we're trapped in the love for money and things in a way that what we find is that the poorest in the world are probably the happiest in the world. Let that sink in a second. If you don't believe me, get on a plane, go to the Philippines. When they go to Mold, I can show it to you in country after country after country after country. It doesn't mean that they don't have issues, but listen, one of the issues that they don't have is T-I-M-E. I would choose time every day over money. Money or time with my wife? Money or time with my kids? Money or time on the mission field? Most of us don't have time for the things that matter most in life, and we think we're rich and we're really poor. Again, he's going to say, what good does it do? Build a company. And if it costs you your family, literally in most translations, it actually is worded differently than the NASB. 
In the NASB, it, it doesn't mention it, but in almost every other translations, the way they put the, that verse, uh, verse 12, is it says that they have nobody to bury them. What do you think it means when it says they have nobody to bury them? It means the family and friends, they're not there. Why? <laughs> they, those family and friends didn't matter while they were trying to earn the dollar and make the money. Dads, let me tell you something. Time, not money, is the greatest thing you can give to your children. Now, money is important, and money has to pay the bills. But if you're trying to build something and give them something that is taking away every bit of your time, something's wrong. Something's gravely wrong. And what a shame to come to the end of your life and you ain't got nobody to bury you because you don't have a single relationship that matters. And nobody's there. That's what he's saying. And he says, you think you're finding peace of mind, but the reality is that that's just not true. The poor man is able to go home and enjoy time with his people because he's not captivated by things, but when he dies, somebody's going to be there to miss him and to cry. But if the rich man doesn't keep making money, which he's got to do, because if he doesn't keep making money, they're going to come and take away all the playthings. If you're not careful, and this isn't true across the board, church, but for many of us it is. Because we're so indebted and we don't live rightly with the wealth and the things that God gives us, for most of us, wealth can actually rob us of rest and make us live a life of constant worry. You know what the reality is? Most marriages, you know why they fail? One of the largest contributing factors is just money, period. You say, well, that's poor people. That's people that don't have money, right? No, 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 no. Some of the most indebted people in America are the people with the most money. Remember I told you it doesn't matter if you have a million or ten dollars. If I give you ten, you're going to spend it. If I give you a million, guess what you're going to do? You're going to spend it too. And now you just have a million more things to worry about. And you've got to be very careful, church. Paul will go on and say it this way in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, which we've already talked a little bit about, where he said for this same section of Scripture where it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Before that, he says that really what you need to understand, believer, is if you really want peace of mind, then you have to come to grips with contentment. Have you learned to be content in every circumstance? Because I can tell you this, when we both worked at Piggly Wiggly, newly married, all we cared about was time together. Life was so much simpler, and we were able to find contentment on about $12,000. Now you sit at home later in life as adults, and you get frustrated because you can't go find anything to do that doesn't cost what? Doesn't cost money. You ever sit there on a Saturday and feel like, we can't do nothing? Oh, except spend time with each other. You know, break out a board game. You know, just, just enjoy each other. It's just the culture we've become. And it's no different than these cultures that were built so long ago and, and, and nothing is new under the sun, he said. Here's what I can tell you for sure. 
You might want to write this down because it's true. God will not let you be happy with things. He won't let you find ultimate joy in things. And let me tell you why that is. Because God has placed in you a desire to know him. And nothing else can fill that void. Nothing. You will not find peace. You will not find peace of mind until you find the Prince of Peace. Period. And everything else you try to fill that void with will leave you meaningless. And you can argue with God, and you can debate with God, and you can try to tell Him why He should bless you, and you can name it and claim it and demand it of Him that this should be part of your life. Sometimes the biggest blessing that God has given to some of us is that He has actually withheld riches. But most of us don't see it that way. And you know what God is trying to tell you every single day? Is that the secret to peace of mind, the secret to life, the secret to truly living is knowing him. It's what Paul said. I consider everything what? Loss compared to knowing him. Most of us think, well, I've got God, but that's not really enough. I need this, 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 and this. You see how backwards that is from Scripture? Because fifthly, I don't know if that's a word, we're going to say it. Y'all get up here every week. It's hard to, to come up with words every week. You just make them up. Money can never give us security. It doesn't give you peace of mind. It doesn't give you security. I read the story and saw the documentary on the temptations. How many of y'all remember the temptations? If you're a little bit older in the room, you probably well, the singers. Motown, the temptation. Not... Not, not sin, Miss, Miss Joanne. I don't mean, I, I know you remember your temptations. I want, Miss Joanne's like, I ain't going to raise my hand and tell my temptations. No, the singing group, I should have been more specific. When they found the temptations, they were just four guys singing on a corner. Back then, the music to them, it was just pure. And, and there was, they, they just did it for the love of music. And they were out there singing. And one day, somebody came along and said, boy, if you guys made a record, you'd be rich those men would tell you although three of them are dead tragically if they had to do it all over again they'd have stayed singing on that corner because the moment they put in their heart to become rich and to become famous once Motown became the goal of their life that money at such a young age and what comes with it? Ruin them. One of them died of an overdose and was addicted to drugs. One of them committed suicide. The other lost everything and everybody that mattered to him. His family had an adulterous affair and lost everything. They're not the only ones. I mean, I would say most of us in this room would think, man, if we could, I mean, think about it. When, when Miley Cyrus started coming on television and she started making her millions and then her hundreds of millions of dollars, most parents would sit back and go, oh, thank Jesus. She's going to be set for life. This is going to be life-changing for all of us. She's never have to worry again. She's got all the money she could ever need and ever use. And, and you would just think that that would be such a blessing to this child and to this family. Have you ever looked at what it's done to that 
poor child. I always think of Billy Joel and Christy Brinkley. I mean, Billy Joel, that dude could sing. He's famous, got this great career. He marries the supermodel, right? She's famous, and she's got all the money in the world. And I mean, you would think that if you have what they have, life's going to be it's going to be perfect. How could it not be perfect? They got married when I was like eight, nine years old. I was thinking, well, Billy Joel, he's the man. But then, however many years later, when it came out on the news that they were going to be divorcing and how unhappy they were, even as a young man, not knowing Scripture the way I do now, in the back of my head I was thinking, how in the world could that happen to them? Because they have everything. You can have everything and have nothing, church. And that's what Solomon's trying to get into our heads, is that you think money is security. But I'm telling you, God restricting some of you from making that is probably the biggest blessing. My dad used to say to me all the time, and I think he means it, and I still think he means it to this day. I always ask him, Dad, why don't we have a boat? Dad, why don't we have a boat? Dad, I mean, we lived in Florida. There was water everywhere from the lakes to the... And we, and we love to fish. I mean, fishing is what we do. And you know what he said to me? He said, son, God knows better than to give me a boat. And at first, I, you know, when I was young, I scratched my head at that. I'm like, what does that even mean? But being older now, I know exactly what that means. That means that half the weeks we would never be in church. Why? Because you got a boat, and if you got a boat, you got to use the boat. Because otherwise, you're wasting money. Forget about church. Forget about mission. Forget about anything else. Listen, we got a life we have to maintain. We're paying bills on this thing. We're paying insurance on this thing. Dad was exactly right. Because I didn't, and I didn't, you know, all it meant to me as a kid was, well, that stinks. That's what I was thinking. But now that I'm a pastor, and I'm an adult, now I watch... And I think to myself, he is exactly right. If he'd had a boat, I don't even know if I'd be in ministry today because I don't know that I'd have been raised in the church the way that I was raised. I'd have probably been raised on the water. My mom said I was raised by a pack of wolves. That's another whole story. Folks, what is so sad is it doesn't bring security. Money, when you really understand it for what it is, when you put all your faith in it, you're destined to fall because all of our accomplishments in this world, all of the worldly things that we pour into that are just things that have no eternal value, they're just sandcastles. And you know what happens to every sandcastle eventually, right? They just get washed away. I've watched people put all of their life into sports. And a wave hits and they break their back. And if that was their security, if that was what brought fulfillment, if that was what gave them peace of mind, if that was what was going to solve all their problems, if that was what was going to satisfy them, guess what just happened? Everything they've lived for now suddenly became 
meaningless. You can build up your 401k. Remember during the depression? Remember what was happening as the money was disappearing and you couldn't get to your money? It was one of the highest suicide rates in the history of the U.S. because people were flinging themselves out of windows because in their mind they lost everything. And it was just money. It was just money. But people were killing themselves because all of their hope and all of their security and all of their peace of mind and all of their satisfaction was in pieces of paper. And when the depression hit and they realized, I've run out of pieces of paper... They felt they had nothing else to live for. Is that not tragic? And Solomon says, why in the world would you envy that? Put your hope in me, he says. Live for me, he says. The God who never fails. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who loves you, the God who died for you, the God who wants nothing more than to walk in an intimate, personal relationship with you. And so Solomon finishes, and Kevin, you can come, he finishes with, right there, he says, you can choose the life, as 17 puts it, where there's darkness and vexation and sickness and anger. And He says, or what 18 says. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. Eat, drink, and enjoy in all of one's labor, which he toils under the sun. And listen to what it says, during the few years of his life. What he's saying is, he's not saying eat, drink, and be merry in the sense that that is men in other places in the scripture. What he's saying is, what good is it to have all of this and never enjoy it? What good is it to have and say that I'm doing all of the, I mean, think about men, how many times have we said, I'm doing this for my family. You mean the one you never see? You mean the one you never have time for? That one? That family? I'm doing this for my kids. You mean the ones that, that aren't learning and gleaning everything spiritual from you? All they're learning is that, hey, you know what? You got to make a dollar. That's life. That's the good life. I got to have things because things are what matter. No, 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 no. He says you've got to enjoy the people in your life, the things in your life, because your life is brief and it's going to come to an end more quickly. I feel for people, and, and listen, we've seen it right here in this community in the recent past, where people, literally friends of ours in the community, some of you know some of them, they go to retirement, and within two weeks of retiring, they die. If you're waiting to live life for Christ in your retirement, it's probably going to be too late. Today, he says, during your life, wealth should not be the goal of your life. If you are here today and so much of your life, you say, well, I don't know if it's the goal of my life. Well, if you have time for nothing else but that, that's the goal of your life. If you had to sell your house and move into one half that size and that would be considered tragic to you, that's probably the goal of your life. 
He says, rather, we should see wealth as a means to do good and to bring enjoyment. Let me tell you, church, write these down quickly. What Melanie and I learned over the years is when it comes to wealth, and the reason I use that word is because everybody in this room is wealthy, right? Yes, you are. You're the 1% in the world. You're wealthy. We as believers in Jesus Christ, the first thing that we do is we take and we give back the first fruits to our Lord and Savior. The church decides, you know what the reality is? Half the people in this room don't tithe one dime back to the church. Let that sink in. To the work of God's kingdom, to, to those kids in Moldova. Now, it doesn't mean that, I mean, we can say, well, I give to the church. I bought a book. Okay, you bought yourself a book. Well, I, 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 went, I went on a trip. Okay, you went on a trip. What about the people in this community that need to hear about Jesus, that need help in this community? To keep, what about this church? Being able to fulfill the great commission. Do you give back your first fruits to the Lord for His kingdom work? Because you should. What a shame that money means so much. We start off by robbing God. But then once that's done, Melanie and I have always tithed. And guess what? Whether we were making 10000 whether we are making 50, it didn't matter what we make. Guess what? He's provided always. Always, always. We've never missed that 10% in the offerings on top of that. Never. It's just an issue of priority. He's first. And then after that, John put it so eloquently months ago, do you leave margin for others? The whole principle of gleaning, right? Do you leave the corners? Do you leave part of the field? Do you consume everything that you make on you and yours? Or do you have a worldview that says, I serve a giving God, and God blessed me so that I could bless others? So that means even in my finances, I'm going to leave margin to make a difference in people's lives. And I'm going to be willing to give as much as I'm going to be willing to receive. See, now you're starting to look like God. And then what is kept in those accounts for me? Now the question becomes, am I going to enjoy it or am I going to stress over it? Am I going to be content what I have and live within means so I can enjoy life? Or am I going to keep the facade up so that even what I have, I can't even enjoy. You see, those are the things that we need to consider today. Because Solomon says, to live for money, that's a fool's game. He says, but if you'll live with a loose hand on money, be faithful with what's the Lord's, be faithful with what you give away to others and help others with, and enjoy what God has given to you. It will make all the difference in the world. Because I'm going to tell you this. If we focus more on the giver than the... or if, I'm sorry. If we focus more on the gifts than the giver, then we become guilty of idolatry. When your love for money exceeds your love for God, you're becoming an idolater. And if we accept His gifts, but we complain about the amount of those gifts, and we complain about... What we have, understand, we're guilty of ingratitude. And if we hoard the gifts and the blessings that he's given to us and we refuse to share them with anybody else, we're guilty of indulgence. 
But if we yield to his will and use what he gives us for his glory, then listen to what he says. We can enjoy life and be satisfied. Father, we thank you. Lord, for hard truths. Lord, this, this flies in the face of what most people say America is. But Lord, we're not seeking an American dream. We are seeking to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, we haven't had one moment of success until you say those words. No matter how much we have, Lord, don't let us believe the lie that he who dies with the most toys wins. Lord, literally, you said the man who builds bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns so that he can just collect and hoard. Literally, you look at him and it's the one time in scripture that you look at somebody and say, you fool. Lord, we don't want to live foolish lives. We want to live godly lives. Lord, we want to be like the Savior who was unashamed to say that you had nowhere to lay your head. Lord, you sacrificed much. If anybody deserved a palace, it was you. If anyone deserved to live like a king, it's you, our king. Lord, what an example you set for us. Laying down your life, living the way that you lived to show us by example that we have but a short time to preach the kingdom. So Lord, get us focused. Change our thoughts and our lives and our hearts about these matters. And Lord, we just pray that you would move as only you can today. Stir our hearts. Make us commit the rest of our lives to seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness and trusting, Lord, that whatever you put in our path, Lord, we'll be grateful. And we'll be content. And we'll worship you. And we'll be faithful. So, Lord, stir us today in Jesus' name.